Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. So here's my question to both of you. Will you be paying $8 a month for a blue check mark on Twitter. So I will confess that I actually did pay for Twitter Blue, which is its current iteration, but I got a subscription when it was only 2.99 and I had it for like 3 months and I canceled it the day before uh Elon's purchase of Twitter rent went through. But wait, but why? I don't want to pay I don't want to pay this that guy. Come on. You're paying man. him anyway. It's not how this you're paying not- him with your attention. This is what I don't understand. Like, there's no difference between paying him $8 a month and paying him with the ad revenue that you get because we're all addicted to this toxic platform. You're paying him either way. You are the product. Have you learned nothing about content well, moderation wait, if you're, if you're paying, If you're paying him by your attention, why would you augment that by paying him more? Because I need, I need the, 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 the peer validation of a blue little checkmark. No, so the name. thing is, I think, I think that the checkmark <laughs> plan completely misunderstands the dynamics of Twitter. Paying for a checkmark means that you want people to like you and think that you're cool, which is cringe, which is the cardinal sin on Twitter. Nobody will want to pay for a blue checkmark. If you have a blue checkmark, you will be bullied mercilessly. Twitter is just one walking cringe. Everyone on Twitter just wants to be liked by everyone else. I... Am divesting from Elon Musk by neglecting Twitter for the last year. I just saw this coming. This is why I stopped paying attention to Twitter. Not because I'm lazy or because I had a kid. Just because I just stopped caring. Because <laughs> you're principled. Fine. Because I'm principled. Exactly. Deeply, deeply principled. What I don't understand is who gets the twenty dollars and who gets the eight dollars. Because as far as we know, Stephen King is the only guy who gets the eight dollars. <laughs> it might just be Elon's favorite authors or people named Stephen. It's just him and Stephen Colbert. Get it. I think that the the really important thing to understand here is that if this is like Musk's plan to bring in revenue for Twitter, if you do the math, it is not going to cover the enormous hole in his pocket that he's created by purchasing this company, which has never been profitable. I think at this point is essentially a very intensive hobby for him. It is basically the person who bought the Peloton and is like, well, I spent $3,000 on this thing and it feels like a waste if I don't tweet at least every couple hours at some weird idiot who put me in a Twitter thread. And I think that's what Elon's doing now. All I can say is, listeners, you can follow all of us on Mastodon. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson. I'm thrilled to be here in a very spooky post-All Hallows Eve edition with my other co-host, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. I have a question, though. Wait, wait, wait. Please. If there's, please. Ha- if there's All Hallows Eve, which is what Halloween is, is there All Hallows Day? This is Hallows. This is All Hallows Day. What What is All Hallows Day? I've never heard of All Hallows Day. It's, it's for the Hallows. It's the day after All Hallows Eve. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's for the Hallows. 
Yeah, they did a whole song. They, uh, Lady Gaga did a whole song about it. With that. It is <laughs> all it is all Saints Day, and apparently oh, there also, is okay. also God, it's sometimes called Hallowmas, which I Whoa. I love. Um, it sounds like a brand of marshmallows or something. Oh, I like that Hallowmas. We should. I mean, it's also Dia de los Muertos, right? So there's that. Yes, fair, fair. Okay, I didn't realize that Hallow's Day and All Saints Day were the same day. Now I know. Now you know. There you go. Could we hallow them? They're the most hallow. <laughs> I hallow. Hello, I hallow hello, you guys. Hello, hello to hello to both of you. Hello, uh, hello. Uh, well, Alan and Quinta, how was your All Hallows Eve Halloween? Mine, mine was great. My my toddler dressed like a dinosaur and and ate his first Snickers bar. And I have to tell you, the look of like sugar high frenzy in his eyes when he like turned to me with his just face covered in chocolate it just this look that was like dude this exists where has this been the entire 19 months of my life it was awesome <laughs> my son insisted i took a try to come on a walk to try and go see other costumes he was very interested in briefly and then he insisted i was like oh but he's gonna get a little scared he's gonna be a little too much he's only a year old Instead, he took me to the middle of the park near our house in the middle of the night in the creepiest corner of our neighborhood I've seen. And I'm like, why are we here, Reese? What are we possibly looking for? And he just looks at me dead in the eyes. He says, soccer ball. And this is where, where at toddler soccer the weekend before I had taken a soccer ball away from him and made him put it back in the bin at the end of soccer lesson. And it was as if he was telling me, this is what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to put you in the bin now with the soccer balls. I think he just wanted to play soccer, but it was still a lot. <laughs> and I was like, it's it's like six o'clock at night. Kids can be amazingly spooky. Very spooky and also weirdly good sense of direction. I was like very <laughs> impressed by this because it's it's a distance from our house for a one year old. He's like a bird. He can like he has he can like magnetically guide himself. <laughs> I think that's right. Balls. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's also it's a grid system. It helps probably a little bit. It's like two turns, but still. But still. Well. I am excited to be here with both of you for what we are calling the Happy Hallowmas Edition, because on this very, very saintly Hallowmas Day, there are still national security stories that need some dissecting uh, that I'm looking forward to digging into with the both of you. Topic one for today, a home invasion in the house. A man connected to various online conspiracy theories entered the San Francisco home of Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi this past week and violently assaulted her husband, all as part of a plot to kidnap and torture her. What is to blame for this type of violence, and are we taking it seriously enough? Topic two, first ruse, 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 use. It works better in print. Look for it. Look for the print version. The Biden administration's <laughs> recently released nuclear posture review has taken many progressives by surprise. It appears to walk back from candidate Biden's commitment to a policy against first use of nuclear weapons. Is their criticism fair? What should we make of the Biden administration's nuclear strategy? And topic three, trust and the fourth estate. The Justice Department has codified new guidelines putting significant restrictions on when and how prosecutors can subpoena and arrest journalists. Are these restrictions well-founded or do they go too far? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it to you to set us up and get us started. So on Friday, uh, David DePape, I'm not actually sure that's how you pronounce his name, uh, so apologies if I mispronounce that. Uh, he's a 42-year-old former nudist and Green Party supporter who uh, in the last two years apparently fell under the influence of some right-wing QAnon, Pizzagate-type conspiracies. Uh, he broke into Nancy Pelosi's San Francisco home and attacked her 82-year-old husband, Paul. 
uh, apparently asking, where's Nancy, uh, before uh, seriously injuring Pelosi's husband with a hammer. When he was arrested by police, uh, DePape admitted that he had planned to kidnap Nancy Pelosi and further planned to break her kneecaps if she, quote unquote, lied to him. He would wanted to do this so that she would have to go to the House floor in a wheelchair. Democrats and many Republicans have condemned the attack, but there's been plenty of right-wing mockery and disinformation. Um, even uh, Elon Musk uh, briefly retweeted a conspiracy theory uh, about David Pape being a male prostitute uh, before mercifully deleting that quickly. So, Quinn, I'm going to start with you because you just published a great piece on, on Lawfare uh, about the coverage and that this attack has gotten, and in particular that it hasn't gotten. You know, what, what's your what's your read on how? Uh, this latest piece of political violence has uh, bounced around the zeitgeist. Yeah, I mean, so the attack is really horrifying. And it's it's worth saying that, you know, I think it maybe hasn't gotten as much attention as we might expect for an attack on the family member or an attempt to kill the, the Speaker of the House, who is, after all, uh, two heartbeats away from the presidency. I think that may be because uh, Paul Pelosi and his Pelosi's husband, uh, according to the Speaker, you know, will recover and be fine. That said, uh, if you fracture the skull of an 82-year-old with a hammer, I'm I'm actually not sure what a full recovery, which is what Pelosi originally said, uh, is is possible or or what that would even mean. And the the criminal complaint against a pape is pretty brutal in terms of describing the attack on Paul Pelosi and and what DePape was planning to do to Nancy Pelosi, as you said, Alan. I mean, I think it's it's a sort of particularly extreme example of a really brutal trend that we have seen in recent years, which is just a massive increase in threats, harassment, and uh, online abuse and physical violence against elected officials. I think I would put where I think that started probably sometime under Trump. Trump is certainly a major aficionado of that approach to politics. He would routinely call people out by name in front of crowds of supporters with a kind of, well, no one rid me of this meddlesome priest logic. You know, you, you, I'd Point your finger at someone and that kind of sticks the mob on them. Seamus Hughes of the George Washington University Program on Extremism uh, put out a really interesting Twitter thread uh, last night saying that he'd gone through the federal cases involving threats against elected officials since 2016 and that it's pretty clear that there has been a sharp rise uh, in Seamus's telling across all parts of the political spectrum. And often uh, the threats are made by people who, like DePape seems to, are struggling with mental illness, which I don't think should discount the seriousness of the situation. That said, I mean, it's also, I think, key to understand that this kind of violence is winked at, encouraged, treated as fun and a joke only by one of the two major political parties. Uh, the, The Republican response to the attack, there was some sort of initial wrote statements saying, you know, this is terrible, we condemn this, etc. And that pretty quickly descended into uh, outright mockery, sort of winks and nods. I think one of the the most appalling comments comes from Carrie Lake, who's the Republican nominee for governor of Arizona, who uh, made a joke uh, in front of a sort of guffawing crowd about uh, Pelosi not having enough security at her home. 
uh, all kinds of memes and conspiracy theories. So it's pretty clear that the Republican Party, this is just part of mainstream Republican politics at this point. And I think it's really worrying because there is no reason to think that it will end here or that it will not continue. And there's, you know, this was a close call. There is no reason to think that we won't have future close calls and future circumstances in which, you know, the violence could be successful. So, yeah, I I mean, I agree with you that it's important not to fall into false equivalency about which of the two main political parties is is advocating or encouraging or supporting this sort of violence. I do wonder, though, and I'm just curious, I mean, it's impossible to know, but I'm just curious what your intuition is as to where the margin, the marginal causal effect is. Um, and, And by that, I mean, you know, you have, you know, as people like Seamus and others have point, right, pointed out, you have this increase in violence. The increase in violence is is across the political spectrum, right? I mean, obviously, there's the the famous shooting a few years ago of of the congressional Republican baseball game that nearly killed Steve Scalise, right? There are threats against Supreme Court justices, uh, especially on the right, right? That person who you know was planning on attacking Kavanaugh um, because he wanted to prevent Roe versus Wade being overturned. And so, the question to me, I'm curious, is the additional kind of awful, awful, awful rhetoric that we're coming, we're seeing from the right. How much do we think that that adds to the potential for violence? Yeah, look, it's it's a good question. Uh, it's an empirical question that presumably has an empirical answer. And I, I don't know if we have the numbers at that point, right? It would be interesting to take a look at all of the charging documents in all of these cases and see where people are pulling their messages from, right? Um, so, for example, uh, another... Recent case along these lines on the right was the case of Cesar Sayoc, who uh, listeners have probably forgotten in 2018, mailed a number of pipe bombs to a number of high profile Democratic politicians. Um, His lawyer later said that Sayoc had uh, intellectual disabilities. Uh, He wasn't doing well in a variety of ways, had taken to watching Fox News and essentially believed what he saw in Sean Hannity, that the Democrats were involved in a sinister plot to take over the country. And responded by sending out pipe bombs. Certainly, I'm not saying that there's, you know, the left has never engaged in violence. Obviously, the the 1970s was a period of pretty extreme violence by groups on the left, among others. But I just don't think you can find that kind of rhetoric in prominent places um, on the left or in the Democratic Party. And one one important note here, um, there's some really interesting research in a, a recent book called Radical American Partisanship by uh, political scientists Liliana Mason and Nathan Calmo, who point to research that suggests that the language of political elites can have a really strong impact on whether or not people support, whether or not partisans specifically support violence, that if a you know, uh, an elite suggests that violence is good and should be encouraged, that people will be more open to violence if a leader of a political party uh, speaks in sort of calming words and suggests that people should, you know, not be violent, should walk away, that that turns people away from it. And so I do think that with that research in mind, the fact that the Democratic Party has sort of universally condemned, you know, condemned the Scalise shooting, condemned the uh, attempted attack on Kavanaugh, whereas the Republicans, it's a mixture of sort of condemnation and jeering and even encouraging really matters. Yeah, I'll I'll second that. I mean, I, I think it becomes too close to say this is a correlation or phenomena that really ties in with the onset of the Trump era. 
which I don't think is quite what you're saying, Quinta, but I, I do think it makes way with, worth clarifying that a little bit, right? Like we've seen a, a build in political violence and not for the first time in American history. We've had other periods where America, where political violence has been more prevalent in American history than others, even more prevalent probably than it is today. And, but we've seen it on the rise really for, for many years, going back to the Obama administration, beginning of the Obama administration, there was a lot of worry about, you know, escalating violence that's mostly motivated by uh, political rhetoric, racist rhetoric, but going back to those era, and we're seeing a kind of continuity now where it's kind of coming to new fruition. I, I think the parts that are different is that two things. One, you just put your finger on exactly, Quinta, which is that we no longer have this consensus around condemning these acts of violence and really making the point that this is terrible. None of these people who are making casual jokes and asides about this incident would say this was a good thing if squarely asked about it. None of them would actually encourage it. Uh, frankly, not many of them would probably expressly, although they nod towards you know certain conspiracy theories, ideas, QAnon-type ideas that appear to have motivated this individual, although they do may do a lot to facilitate it by a lot of accounts. But that's not enough. It's not enough to not affirmatively urge these things. You really need to be condemning them wholeheartedly and underscoring that this crosses an inappropriate line that these sorts of views don't really, you know, it should not be crossing. And that used to be a, a point of strong consensus. And I do think that's decline and that's a problem. And, and I think there's a, a very fair point to say that I do think there's a certain part of the political spectrum. Again, I don't think it's the entire Republican Party, uh, but it's a part of the political community, political spectrum located on the right that probably is most for far along in loosening the norms around condemning that sort of behavior. The other part of it, though, that I think is unique to the modern era, kind of the post-Trump era for kind of different reasons, is the proliferation and nodding to things like the QAnon conspiracy, which is a violence-facilitating ideology. It is not merely an ideology about what is right and wrong politically that some people may take seriously enough to take the point of violence. The whole logic behind the QAnon conspiracy is that there is a cabal of people controlling things and exercising violence against children and assorted other people, and that violence is necessary to upset them. It's an ideology specifically designed and a version of reality specifically designed to facilitate and make violence seem more acceptable, and then leveling it against not just senior politicians, right? Like actually like other Americans. And that to me is what's really concerning. I mean, in this case, we saw this individual begin to level this violence against a very prominent figure. And thankfully, it appears to have not resulted in major health consequences. Although Quinto's right, we don't 100% know what the consequence will be for Mr. Pelosi. And that's part of the reason why I think it's a little easier to write off. I think it would be harder if he had been killed, uh, but it shouldn't have to cross that line to be taken seriously. But, you know, I'm worried, much more worried, frankly, that a lot of the same factors that facilitate that could easily facilitate targeting against campaign volunteers and members of the other parties and more violence against you know political events that tie in and are justified by the ideology. And I think that really is a big policy problem that doesn't get the adequate weight because it has become such intermingled with ideas of politics or just being viewed as kind of like online communities and chatter as opposed to really what it is, which is a violent-inducing ideology and worldview that's that's inciting people to violence. And that's a big policy concern that we take seriously in other contexts. And you know, I, I don't see a strong case for not taking it as seriously here. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, and, and I think it's important that we understand this as, like I said, a, sort of a particularly extreme example, but part of a broader trend of attacks, threats against people in public roles in all walks of life, you know, so now not only the Speaker of the House, but also like 
officials on school boards, um, congressional staff, right? Um, this is not, it's it's affecting everyone. And I think what really worries me is the question of, you know, if you are interested in politics, if that is now no longer something that appeals to you, that kind of civic engagement, because it comes along with the likelihood that you will be threatened or even attacked in some way. And that I think is particularly disturbing because if we're ever going to get out of this rotten situation, we need you know, passionate, committed people to be engaged in politics. And this is having exactly the opposite effect. So I I guess the question then, right, is what, if anything, can be done to stop this, or or at least to to lower the risk? I mean, in my my gloomier moments, I think that it'll take someone being assassinated for us to kind of snap out of it. But then, of course, even in my even gloomier, gloomier moments, I look at the history of political assassinations in the 1960s, and you have JFK assassinated in 1963. And of course, that doesn't stop assassinations. You then have Malcolm X two years later, MLK in 1968, and then RFK, right? Uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy the same year. So it does seem like there, there are just sort of the underlying structural features of, of periods in American history of, of dislocation um, that, that lead to this. And we have a lot of guns. It's just, it's not that hard to kill people in this country, which is kind of the sad, the sad part of it. Um, and especially if you're dealing with, I mean, I'm not sure I want to import the nomenclature of, you know, lone wolves from the kind of terrorism from the international terrorism context into here, but for, you know, lack of a better term, I just, I don't know. I just, I just, I don't, I just don't see how this gets better over the next five to 10 years, you know, especially if you think that the problems are structural, right? And if you think the problems are structural, then you look around the whole world and you realize, okay, well, clearly it's not just an American thing um, regarding violence and extremism. And then it really becomes hard to see an optimistic path, you know, at least in the next few years. I don't know. Can, can, someone, can someone please tell me I'm being too much of a bummer? I'd, I'd like that. No, I agree. <laughs> I, I'm not sure you're being too much of a bummer. The thing I want to see is that I want to see Democrats make this an issue and Republicans, frankly, running in primaries against people who cater to these sorts of views. Like, I think we just need to start be even, being even more explicit about calling people out on it. And I think there's a resistance to that because it's seen as a fight that doesn't play to core issues. You know, people say, well, we really want to pivot to focus on core political constituency concerns. Nobody's polling and saying, oh, a high priority for us is this concern over, you know, political violence, things like that. But I think that kind of misunderstands the way these fundamental, frankly, often national security or law and order or kind of like governance issues actually enter kind of the zeitgeist uh, and like the the mentality of voters and the broader public. Like, I think if you really underscore the responsibility here, you don't need to make it a plank of your platform really call people out on it in a public way and make it an issue, I think is the only way you can really start imposing political consequences because people begin to put it in the political theater and say, hey, we can actually realize there's actual harm to this. And their opponent has pointed out to us what they're doing is positively harmful and facilitating this sort of violence. Now, in this particular case, this event happened so late in the political cycle. I think it's probably not something that's easy to pivot to for campaigns. Uh, Frankly, most campaigns at this point are at the get out the vote stage, not the kind of building the vote stage. Like they're at this point just trying to mobilize existing supporters. But I hope it comes back. Like I think you need to see these issues come back and people really um, make an issue out of them if they're going to have political salience. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I worry that if you had a bunch of Democrats go up and say, our opponents are encouraging people to come and kill us, that a lot of Republican voters would say, awesome. Uh, because that is the direction that 
political discourse has gone. But if that's the case, there's like nothing you can do about that. And it's better to know that, yeah. frankly. But I don't think, I mean, I think there there is are a lot of people, and I actually think like most polls, most like surveys of particularly people who voted for Donald Trump and vote for Republicans underscores that like there's a lot of people who don't feel super strongly about QAnon or don't feel super strongly about Donald Trump and stuff like that. They vote for Republicans because they don't like taxes. They've always voted Republican. They're kind of just naturally socially conservative or economically conservative. Um, you know, I can think of lots of people in my family and I grew up with that fit in this vein. None of them were particularly enthusiastic for Donald Trump, but many of them still vote Republican because that's just kind of where their natural inclination is. But issues like this like matter to them. I think they really matter to like Liz Cheney types and other people who have really come out and taken a pretty strong stance against what is frankly the biggest iteration of this violence, which is January 6th, right? Like, I think it actually is an issue. I think if you look at folks like The Dispatch or The Bulwark, a lot of those writers, a big thing that I think drove them away from the main thrust of the Republican Party now was over issues like this. And I still think they're there. Uh, those issues matter. We just need to find politically ways to really make them salient and underscore the difference. And I don't think that that struggle is over. I don't think writing it off is the right approach at this moment. So I, I think I, I think I disagree with with both of you in certain respects. So I mean I Quinta I, I think I think you are I think you are frankly overstating it that you know if Democrats came out and said the Republicans are trying to kill us, a bunch of Republicans right even a sizable minority would say yes that's what we're trying to do. What I do think would happen though, and this is kind of why I'm so more skeptical of Scott's idea of trying to politicize this through the normal channels of domestic politics, is that you would end up with a lot of whataboutism. Right, um, you'd end up with a lot of alternative facts. You'd, you'd, you'd end up with a lot of denialism. Right, it, it, it would you would not be able to have a rational conversation about this. I get not because I literally think that even a sizable number of Republicans actually want political violence, but because like people just can't have this conversation when it's filtered through partisanship, because then that hits their identity and it hits all their other reinforcing identities, and then partisanship is the mind killer, which then leads me to think that. Maybe uh, national security framing is actually the right framing to do, right? That this is not that that whatever the truth of the matter may be, right? The right way to frame this is to say this is an internal security threat, right? Um, this is domestic terrorism, um, and we have to bring the tools that we use, right, in the national security context to this issue. Now, you know, the the problem with that, of course, is that that raises the you know the question of well, how do you bring these incredibly invasive tools? against a diffuse domestic political movement without creating a surveillance police state and shredding everyone's first amendment first amendment rights that of course is a, is a, you know a big downside to put it to put it lightly i'm just trying to think through what are the ways in which this country can even have a conversation about the fact that stuff like this is happening and it's really very bad yeah, I don't. I 100% agree with that, and that's actually a clarification may worth make, making. I don't think the secret is to make this a partisan issue. I think the actually secret is the opposite. You need to make it an issue about conduct that is, regardless of party, bad conduct pursued by individual candidates, and nail those candidates for it. I think trying to tie it to the broader Republican Party and other issues like that, while we can see systemic problems, perhaps at that point, I, I think is probably likely to be less effective. You've got to reinforce it as a norm that's bad for individual candidates. And part of that can blend in to say, this is a policy problem that needs policy responses. This is a national security threat. I think those two kind of go hand in hand in a lot of ways. And that is that is the tack I think you need to, to pursue down. 
Yeah, Alan, to your point about the national security framing, I mean, I think there's there's certainly a lot of truth to that, right? Like if you read how DePape describes his plan to the police, he's describing trying to commit violence against Pelosi to frighten other members of Congress. Uh, that is, I'm comfortable describing that as terrorism. The problem, I think, is that we have seen the Republican Party lose its mind over this before. We saw it with January 6th, every time that there's been a description of the insurrectionists as terrorists. There is a lot of conversation about, you know, you know, turning the state against everyday hardworking Americans. We saw when Merrick Garland issued a, a letter warning about threats to teachers, members of school boards, uh, folks involved in education, that cited another letter that referred to uh, violent threats against uh, school board members as comparable to terrorism. Uh, Garland got grilled before the Senate really hauled over the coals for comparing, you know, concerned parents to terrorists, which he had not done. And so I, I worry that though that that framing of national security is potentially a very powerful one, it also hands Republicans who want to sort of make this more of a culture war issue, a very powerful set of tools to say, see, the government is just going after you for expressing your First Amendment rights. Well, speaking of the use of overwhelming government force, uh, the how was that? I thought that was that was an okay transition, right? Yeah, all right. Uh, the <laughs> the Biden administration released its nuclear posture review on October twenty seventh. This is a, a document that's been released by the the last handful of presidents, sort of trying to make sense of as far as I can tell, why the U.S. has nukes and what we should do with them and whether we should have more of them. And it seems like it was generally released to pretty lukewarm reception and also a great deal of criticism from nonproliferation advocates. Um, it did not embrace a, a posture of no first use, which I know that people were hoping for. Um, and there is a pretty amusing piece from uh Fred Kaplan in Slate, where he suggests that possibly the document was intentionally written poorly to uh, encourage people not to read it, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, so, Scott, I want to turn it over to you first, if you can kind of give us a sense of like what what were people expecting from this and how does it compare to the previous documents from the Trump and Obama administrations? Sure. I mean, this is an issue that in kind of elite national security policy wonky circles, and particularly like the very, very large community of people who work on nuclear weapons issues in D.C., for those who aren't in the D.C. policy circles, there is just a giant, giant community of people who work on that issue set here in organizations um, for good reasons, because very serious issue set. But it's one that gets uh, a certain degree of uh, attention from funders and has a lot of kind of institutional heft behind in the kind of nonprofit think tank space. This issue of how we think about our potential use of nuclear weapons and tailor our nuclear capacity and arsenal accordingly has been a constant point of tension really, really for decades and decades now, but particularly for the last 15 or 20 years or so. During the Obama administration, there was a strong push towards trying to do something like a no first use policy or something maybe even more restrained where you're saying, no, we're going to use this for very specific applications for you know nuclear threats and limit the idea that nuclear weapons are supposed to be a tool in the arsenal. And if you accept the fact that you 
put legal or moral or political limits on using nuclear weapons as a tool in general interstate conflict or international conflict, then you would probably say, well, then we don't really need that many nuclear weapons. And we certainly don't need tactical nuclear weapons because we're only using this for very large threats, not in small calculating ways, which is what tactical nuclear weapons are supposed to do. And therefore, you know, you really are saying we're going to rely on other types of tools to do this. And so it's seen as a vehicle of both eliminating nuclear risk because you're clearly signaling to other nuclear powers, hey, you don't have to worry about us doing first use uh, or perhaps even going so far. You don't even have to worry about us responding except in the event of a nuclear attack or a serious threat of a nuclear attack. And therefore, you can be a little more calculated in your own nuclear weapons development. You have less reason to develop tactical nukes because you don't have to get into an arms race with us over who has a better tactical nuclear capability. It basically tries to level set and tamp down threat levels that drive the development of nuclear arsenals and all of the risks that come with them, including those weapons falling into loose hands, being degraded, and then the risk that a government is just going to make a mistake one day, think they're being attacked when they're not, and launch nuclear weapons in response. The Obama administration flirted with no first use. It got kind of close rhetorically, but never fully embraced it as a policy towards the end of its administration. The Trump administration really kind of dramatically rolled that back, I would say, and its nuclear posture review um, that it rolled out, it, it basically made the point and really emphasized this idea of multi-domain deterrence, where it said quite clearly, look, we have conflict and competition happening across all these different domains. The Trump national security strategy and national defense strategy are also kind of the first ones to really drill down and say, we are in conflict with Russia and China, and that is the defining national security issue. So I don't think it's a coincidence that they, they made this move on nuclear weapons, where with nuclear weapons, they said, you know, we could get a threat on a conventional level. We could get a threat in cyberspace or in outer space. And a nuclear weapon response may be appropriate to that. We're going to deter across all domains. And that means nuclear deterrence exists on those other more conventional domains as well. And that was a pretty controversial concept, um, but was something that I think people who are less categorically opposed to the use of nuclear weapons, see them as having strategic value, think is a wiser way to approach this issue. The Biden administration, candidate Biden, kind of made some chatter on the campaign trail suggesting he might be open to no first use, that he was was open to the idea that nukes are a very dangerous tool to play with and we should highly restrict how we use them. But that's not reflected in this nuclear posture review. This nuclear posture review is much closer to the idea of uh, cross-domain deterrence that was in the Trump national security strategy. They actually have a different term that we talked about in a prior episode, integrated deterrence, um, that tries to bring together all these tools. And so for that reason, this Biden administration document continues developing more tactically oriented nuclear weapons in line with the Trump administration and says, well, we actually have a role for these in our arsenal. Um, They also cut out some of the biggest nuclear weapons and say, we're going to stop supporting these and and remove these eventually from our arsenal or, or limit their role precisely because it's seen moving in a more tactical domain about where nuclear nuclear weapons, in theory, at least could be used in a variety of circumstance. Now they really try and balance this out by saying, hey, we're doing a lot of things to try and improve nuclear command and control. So there's more time to make any sort of decision, less risk of an accident, less risk of a mistake of us accidentally nuking somebody. And they really, really do drill, make the point saying this is an absolute last resort. It's not something we would take lightly. We would pursue any remotely comparable conventional routes first. But nonetheless, they leave nuclear weapons on the table. That's a pretty interesting development. I can understand why that's controversial, although I also think they understand that there's a logic behind it as well, particularly in the context of Ukraine, Russia, and China, and Taiwan, which are, again, the big challenges that the national security strategy, national defense strategy, and nuclear posture review, the Biden administration has released, all of which are kind of interrelated, are, are addressing. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Can you, can you explain, though, what that logic is? for developing tactical nuclear weapons or developing you know, nuclear weapons that are used tactically? Because it seems to me that the, the main point of nuclear weapons is that they are the ultimate deterrence mechanism, right? They're the only, right, right. you know, the, the, that what makes a nuclear weapon different than other weapons is that nuclear weapons are the only ones that can, through a kind of nuclear carpet bombing of a country, right, hitting its key civilian and in particular military installations, can annihilate its ability to continue the fight within literally minutes, right? No conventional weapons can do that. But if your goal is to attack a particular target, right, we can just drop a bunch of bombs on those targets. And so it seems to me that although tactical nuclear weapons may achieve an objective more easily, they don't provide the same kind of step change or, or, I mean, am I wrong that they don't provide the same kind of step change? And if they don't provide the same kind of step change, and it seems very irresponsible to build, you know, little nukes just because you want to do something more efficiently. Like that, that does not seem worth the price of whatever nuclear nonproliferation or just norm setting dangers that expanding nuclear weapons beyond the kind of World War Three, you know, the, what is it? What is it? The joke, right? The World War Three will be will be uh, fought with nuclear weapons. World War Four will be fought with sticks, kind of kind of idea. I don't know if that's a joke or not. If it's not very funny, uh, but <laughs> it's something people say. It's you're, you're totally right. It was it Einstein? I thought Einstein, it might have yeah. been. Yeah, it's good. The the uh, notorious humorist uh, Albert Einstein. Uh, the you know I, I I think there is a point to critiquing this here, but the counterpoint is you know essentially what other states are deterred by and how they see their calculus, right? For us, it's very easy for us to say, well, we can probably accomplish this objective just as easily with conventional weapons. That might not be true, well, for Russia, particularly these days, right? Like we've seen Russia actually have really substantial conventional weapons limitations on the Ukrainian battlefield. And you could see in that case, if they're saying, well, we really want to shock and awe and show the Ukrainians how we ultimately have advantage over them, you could see the advantage of a tactical nuclear weapon. And if the United States' only ability to respond to that were a potential conventional military attack, of which there are just practical logistical challenges, uh, although I agree, they may be substitutable. And in fact, the reporting we've seen is that that's kind of what the Biden administration would intend to do if there were a use of a nuclear weapon by Russia would be some sort of uh, conventional but substantial conventional response. But if you reserve your only nuclear escalatory route as being to 
you know, a huge large scale weapon, the sort you would only reserve if if you went to true nuclear kind of like Holocaust situation, then you don't have steps up, up and down the escalation ladder that you can deploy in a context where nuclear weapons have more deterrent effect or are seen as a bigger threat or something that Russia might have reason to be more afraid of. But why would Russia, th- I guess that's my question, like practically speaking, why would Russia be more afraid of our tactical nuclear weapons than of, you know, a fleet of B-52 bombers dropping conventional weapons on their civilian or military installations? That's that's the part I don't understand. And, and in particular, even if there is a difference, is that marginal difference worth the fact that you are normalizing the use of tactical nuclear weapons as part of your, you know, cross deterrent, all deterrent, whatever you want to call it, strategy? I, th- I mean, I think I think you've really drilled down to the calculus. Like that's the math here, right? Is how big a is the delta in a deterrent effect of nuclear weapons, just psychologically, separate and apart from parallel conventional actual like like offensive capabilities, and then b in terms of setting aside the psychological element, can we accomplish the same with conventional weapons? We can with nuclear weapons. I suspect you can. I suspect there's also an element of cost and scalability, right? Like if you are going to launch a major, you know, a conventional weapon attack against a, you know, Russia against Russia, right? It's highly risky. There are things Russia could do in response. Um, there's lots of things that could go wrong on their route to get there in ways that Russia could counteract or potentially respond at a smaller scale to those sorts of weapons, right? Whereas a nuclear weapon, maybe you can do it lower cost because you have a big nuclear arsenal and taking it out of that while dollar amount still very expensive, doesn't actually limit your other conventional military options as well. And so it fits into a strategic picture. And, and I think the honest truth is like all of these are kind of guessing games. Like a lot of it hinges on the psychological element. A lot of it hinges on where you think the threshold is that you actually would be willing to deploy one of these things. And I suspect the Biden administration basically says the threshold is incredibly high, but that doesn't mean it's it's been totally off the radar. And I, I do think that the psychological element may play a bigger role here. Um, certainly Russia and China, I think, think it does because they trot out the nuclear threat quite frequently in their own rhetoric and military posturing. But it is a bit of a guessing game. I don't think we 100% know. And and this is why people say international politics is more of an art than a science, because a lot of it is about intuition and feel that you can't ultimately um, really justify empirically in a very easy way. Sounds sounds like it's more astrology than science. I always like sailing as a metaphor myself, but but it's worth now <laughs> we're getting you're into like here. Like tacking into the wind, tacking between the points, <laughs> correcting constantly, feeling the winds. That's how I always Wear, think wearing that. shorts with critters. Just that real, yeah. real waspy, real wasp stuff. That's my vibe. Sweater <laughs> around my shoulders for no damn good reason, even though I'm wearing shorts. <laughs> it's like a scarf. It, it exactly. does. It does get to this. Does get to something that I was wondering about though, which so some of the criticism that this document has received. Is, was there any way for it to be better or clearer or chart a you know more direct path given the situation in Ukraine? Like we, we talked about how the national security strategy was late because they basically had to rip up the whole thing and rewrite it because of the war in Ukraine. To what extent do you think we can see that sort of handprint on this? And to what extent is it just kind of muddled because it's always muddled? 
I kind of suspect this is one of the things that changed the most between last February or but not last February, last November before it was clear Ukraine was going to be what it has become and this February or this year when we were actually seeing this thing released, right? Like we saw, we've seen dramatic change in the international scene where there's legitimate, very real concern about a conflict going nuclear between two major nuclear powers. Um, and I think that that makes perhaps the Biden administration more reticent to completely put tools off the table that might have a deterrent effect, uh, even if they're less certain that they do. And I suspect that leaned to this direction. Would it fundamentally have changed you know, the parameters going in there. I don't think so. There's a reason why no first use hasn't had much bite inside the national security apparatus of government, why every administration has tended to gravitate something a little bit more in a flexible retain options direction than they are on the campaign trail. Uh, trail. Um, you know, that's because the people who work on these issues professionally feel very strongly this way and have a persuasive case, at least internally, once you're in the executive branch as to why they want to keep it that way. Uh, and they're often deferred to by political leaders as a matter of political necessity and out of acknowledgement of their expertise, although people can critique how much expertise they actually have, I suppose, um, or whether it's good, good, well-founded expertise. You know, But that that is a persuasive case we see across political administrations in a variety of arenas, in national security, but particularly in this case. And so I don't think the Biden administration was ever going to 100% stick to what they may have said occasionally on the campaign trail. But I suspect the current geopolitical scenario, much as it did with the Trump administration, is pushing towards a reality where nuclear scenario is much more complicated than it was certainly in a post-Cold War era where we were primarily worried about non-state actors, non-nuclear threats. And that feeds into the framing of our strategic logic in these documents. Well, let us now go from regulating nuclear weapons to regulating the press, because we have seen some interesting- <laughs> Wait, 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 wait. Journalists are as dangerous as nukes. They're just both subjects of regulation. Listeners, you missed the three minutes where Scott was promising us what a good transition he had, and this is what we got. Lies. I was never <laughs> happy with this transition, but I didn't come up with anything better. Regardless, uh, we've seen some interesting developments coming out of the Justice Department in the last week. We finally saw rolled out a pretty dramatic and interesting policy change for the Justice Department in relation to both using kind of compulsory legal process subpoenas and similar processes for getting information out of journalists, basically being able to use the courts to get information journalists may have collected as part of the news gathering process, and then also arresting journalists or subjecting them to you know potentially charges and other sorts of actions. Justice Department, I should note, issued last year kind of interim policy on these points, particularly as a reaction to concerns about how the Trump's Justice Department engaged with reporters uh, over the course of a number of investigations there. That has now been rolled out and codified into a new set of actual regulations in uh, code of federal regulations, meaning they've gone through the full administrative or going through the full administrative process to be put into the law, that really kind of set pretty dramatic. I was actually impressed by how robust they seem to be, at least on, on, on initial read, limits on the extent to which the Justice Department will do these things. Um, none of them are categorical, but they essentially elevate and require approval by the Deputy Attorney General. In some cases, or in other cases, the deputy in charge of the criminal division of the Justice Department, essentially putting pretty high political sign-off on a number of actions and just, just about any actions really involving journalists, whether for arresting them or, or trying to get information related to their news gathering practices. And it's a pretty interesting move, I think. Quinta, let me turn to you first on this. You know, 
as somebody who think, who 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 is uh, is uh, represents a journalist probably most squarely among us, how do you think this response to concerns that journalists had or have had, not really just during the Trump administration, during the Obama administration too, which pursued a number of aggressive leak investigations that came under pretty heavy criticism? Uh, and it's interesting we're seeing Merrick Garland and President Biden tack in a fairly different direction here. Does this address journalist concerns adequately? Uh, is there a way they can ad- address those concerns adequately in a regulation like this? And where do we see the trade-offs? Where do we see the areas where the administration is trying to caveat other interests they have that drove some of those investigations in the first place? Or are they not really here? Yeah, I I was actually struck by how robust these protections seem. And it's, it's worth noting that uh, the attorney general uh, apparently put them together with the help of a number of groups, including the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, which put out uh, a statement approving of what the government has done here. So I, I do think that that is worth keeping in mind. Um, and yeah, as you say, I think it you know it's easy to position this as kind of you know Garland fixing errors that were made under Trump, but this really is a problem that goes back to the Obama administration in terms of journalists being concerned about investigation and even potential prosecution, uh, given that there is no, uh, it's usually called a shield law that would essentially protect journalists for prosecution in the reporting process. I do think it is noteworthy that the department has put in place these protections and that it, it seems to include classified information, sort of working to obtain classified information as part of the news gathering process that is protected. That is noteworthy. My biggest question, I think, uh, and and I'll uh, give a tip of the hat here to the uh, Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia for flagging this and their response to the announcement as well. So this policy applies to members of the news media. Uh, it never defines who that is. Now, there's a very good reason for that which is that even journalists can't define who that is. It's not a profession that has a gatekeeping function. That's sort of part of its whole appeal. But in the current era, there is a lot of gray space that, you know, where being a journalist versus being a, you know, malicious actor, uh, where you shade from one to the other. Jack Goldsmith has written about this uh, very cogently on Lawfare when it comes to WikiLeaks, Um, I think we also, a more uh, recent example is Project Veritas, the sort of right wing like sting group that I think is is currently, if I'm correct, uh, currently being investigated for publishing excerpts from Biden's daughter's diary, which may have been illegally obtained. So like, does that count as news gathering? How does that affect this investigation? Do we count Project Veritas as members of the news media? What about like some person on Twitter who's identifying themselves as a citizen journalist, which is a term that people often use? So I imagine that that there's going to be a lot of fighting about where exactly that line is. Yeah, no, the, the, this question about who counts as a covered media organization, a journalist, it, I agree, I think is, is really important. And I, I almost wonder whether or not the realities of not being willing to extend these protections to, you know, bad faith actors who are nevertheless engaged in journalism. I mean, in the sense that they are, claiming to report about things that happened, you know, whatever their motivations may be, will will simply 
further the sense among these fringe people that they are being persecuted when, you know, the deep state media of the New York Times, et cetera, et cetera, gets this special protection from from the from the government. And I'd be very curious. And here I think, you know, on the one hand, it's great that the department is being so transparent and not just being transparent, but memorializing its policies in these, you know, binding regulations. But again, you know, and this is a kind of a stand. This is actually it's funny. It's a, this is a standard problem in administrative law that you don't tend to think about too much in the national security context. Um, but a standard problem in administrative law is agencies writing rules, but then the actual stuff you want to know about, which is how the, are the rules going to be interpreted, comes along sort of long after the fact. Uh, and so I'd be very curious if the department somewhere has some memo um, giving guidance to itself as to what. Uh, news organization is, or whether they just haven't written that memo. But if they haven't, they're going to have to write it pretty, pretty soon. Because the the tricky case, I think, is not going to be the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, you know, or even the New York Post. It's going to be some far right or far left weirdo uh, out there who you know is is thinks they're a journalist because they have a, a you know Twitter account with ten thousand followers. Well, so I actually think they have a strategy for working around this that is kind of interesting in the regs. And it goes back to the WikiLeaks case, I think, right? Because in the WikiLeaks case, if I'm, I'm doing this a little bit from memory, so I may have some of the details a little fuzzy, but my recollection is over the course of, I think it was three ultimately superseding indictments that we've seen, we saw this kind of creep where the initial indictments focused, uh, there's a leaked indictment, and focused most specifically on Assange's role in facilitating the actual hacking of DOD records by providing certain tools to people participating in it, to Chelsea Manning. Uh, I think it was entirely focused on the Chelsea Manning case, if I recall correctly. And it has since expanded a little bit in ways that, depending on how you read the complaint, get a lot closer to what sounds like much more conventional news publication activities about posting records. There's also a lot of discussion about not pursuing mitigation measures with conventional media. And here, actually, the most important line is that one in the first complaint, where news gathering has an exception for where you engage in criminal conduct. And it's actually pretty express about it, as far as I can tell, as far as you ever are in these kind of guidelines, which are a little broad, where they say essentially, look, news gathering includes all sorts of things, but it does not reach the point at which you are actively violating the law, including computer access crimes or conspiring to do so with another individual. That does not constitute news gathering. And it seems to be shifting the burden really to that line, because it says here, if there is any doubt about whether an entity constitutes as a member of a news media, that determination has to be made by the assistant attorney general for the criminal division. So it's taking, insofar as the 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 limitation here, the the breaks, the restraining factor is the elevation of the decision making. That is the second highest level. I think some things have to go to the deputy attorney general about arresting journalists, but that determination is the second highest, if I'm if I'm recalling correctly, from the set of regs, meaning that. It's providing as much disincentive as it can to determine somebody is not a member of the news media when they colorably might be. I think that would include blogs and things like that. But the line where it says it's clearly excluding what constitutes news gathering is around that criminal conduct. And I think that's really interesting. I actually find that to be the best answer, although I understand I get why people still have some concerns about it, but probably the best answer to this 
question that's raised by the Assange case saying, well, what is, you know, First Amendment press activity? What isn't? I think the participating in the criminal conduct to acquire it is probably as good a line as you're going to get. And to me, this seems to double down on it, which I think is really interesting. Um, but do you guys think I'm misreading that? Am I, am I, or am I reading too much into that? Or does that seem about right to you? What do you think about that as a line? No, I think... I, I think that makes sense. And and you are, I mean, when it comes to Assange, I, I definitely agree. Like the that first indictment that involved, I suppose we'll call it the reporting, that's reporting in air quotes process. Um, I actually remember a lot of journalists kind of breathing a sigh of relief when that came out because it was so focused on essentially, if I'm remembering correctly, giving Manning specific instructions about how to access information. Um, rather than, you know, accepting information from her or, or something like that, you know, conduct that we would not normally think of as part of the reporter's process. Then as, you know, the superseding indictment stacked up, it crept closer and closer to, to pure publication. Um, so I don't know. I mean, and look, like there's, there's always going to be a line drawing problem here. Journalists themselves have that line drawing problem. There's you constantly, constantly arguments about like, is the Daily Caller a legitimate news organization? Right. So I don't necessarily object to the fact that there's fuzziness here. And I do think that you're right that kind of creating a system where the department is incentivized to think very seriously about it and to kick those decisions up to a high level so there's some level of accountability is is probably good. I personally would say that I'm, you know, these are just regs. They can be rescinded. Um, I personally would probably be more comfortable if we actually had a, a law on the books, but I highly doubt that's going to go anywhere. I don't know. Alan, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, there's no there's no perfect way of doing this. And I'll be honest, I, I think I agree somewhat with Jack Goldsmith in that I've always been a little skeptical of the umbrage at which the, the, the umbrage the news media takes when it is subject to the same criminal process that the rest of us are. Journalists love to complain about things. You know, it's just it's our favorite activity. Well, you know, but, but there's also right. There's also that that saying or never argue with someone who buys printer's ink by the barrel. You know, they, they have an advantage, obviously, in defending themselves against these sorts of, at least in the court of public opinion. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always been a little skeptical of that. You know, I don't think the reporting even of mainstream outlets is always necessarily as cautious or as responsible as it as it could be. But all of these are fundamentally quibbles when you put them next to the just ludicrous level of overclassification that we have in the government. I mean, the, the, I think the fundamental problem here and why I'm ultimately very much on the side of not investigating journalists, unless you have some real reason to think that they explicitly instructed or aided and abetted the exfiltration of some document or something like that, is that there is just so, so, so much that is classified and overclassified in the government. And that if government leaks stopped, um, not only would that be like bad for journalism, which, you know, one might say, well, who cares? That's not the point. It would make the government impossible to function because the way the government functions is by constantly calling journalists and selectively leaking things. And so I think when you have that in the background of all of this, I think you know, I think it's more understandable for why then journalists get very upset um, in addition when they then get dragged into this process. Because when they're not being harassed by the government, they're being asked by the government to quietly on background share this or that piece of information given to them by a unnamed source high up in the blah, blah administration who has, 
you know, uh, familiarity with this issue, but it's not authorized to talk, you know, on the record, which is to say they were authorized to talk off the record. <laughs> so, so I, I, I get it that way. And so I, I think, I think I'm ultimately with, with Scott that the, you know, everything short of direct aiding and abetting, it's, it's just probably not worth it. But again, I, you know, we'll have to see what DOJ decides is a, uh, is a legitimate news organization. Because you know you can you can have people who are not committing any crimes, but it's just still awkward to call them journalists because they have just absolutely no professional training or set of responsibilities or sense of responsibility. My ears, my ears are burning, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too, my friend. Me too. <laughs> well, so I actually this actually really intersects well with the, another part of regs that hasn't gotten nearly as much attention that I think is actually way more interesting in a way, or not, at least as interesting. I think all these regs are super interesting. And that's subsection M of, I can't remember what section it is, but it's like the main text e- of this. Everyone who's following along at home, turn your hymnals to subsection the PDF, M. The Federal Register notice, um, which says essentially the Justice Department will not arrest a member of the news media without the approval of the deputy attorney general. That's the highest level approval sought in the entire set of regs. And then says, oh, but there's an exception for here. If the news media, with what you're trying to arrest a member of the news media for, it has nothing to do with news gathering, then you only need approval by the deputy assistant attorney general for the criminal division. I think this is actually like a really, really broad legal protection for members of the news media, like kind of exceptionally broad, particularly if I'm right, and I think I am, that they're leaning towards a broader definition of news media because you're putting pretty big procedural hurdles in place of, of arresting any. I mean, there's a federal DOJ, right? That apply to state crimes, things like that. So a lot of your day-to-day crimes be covered by that, not by federal crime. But it's pretty broad legal protection saying you got to get a high-level sign-off to arrest a member of the news media for anything. And if it is related to news gathering and it seems to strongly imply a you know, bias towards, uh, you know, gray cases going towards the more protective standard, then you're saying the deputy attorney general has to sign off it. That's pretty exceptional. And I have to ask, what's the logic behind that? And I have to say, this reads like it's written by somebody who's frankly worried about the abuse of the Justice Department towards journalists. So what you're saying is that I can go on a crime spree. Well, what? federal crime spree. Yeah, that's what I don't understand. So, wait, so, just, just, so just to clarify, right, like if I commit, I don't know, a crime on the navigable rivers, uh, of the United States, where there's only federal jurisdiction, or I guess if I commit any crime in D.C., uh, yeah, actually, wait, let's just let's just go to D.C., where like half these journalists live. So if I commit a D.C. state state quote unquote state crime, because of course all D.C. crimes are by their nature federal crimes, and it could be anything like public urination or whatever, you know, getting into a bar fight. Um, and I'm a member. Uh, I mean, I'm a I'm a lawfare. You know, I'm a senior editor at lawfare. I'm a journalist. They the DOJ can't arrest me unless the deputy. This can't be right. Yeah, I mean, this, feels, this feels like Scrivener errors levels of not right. I suspect that DC, you will see a rule issued here saying for DC cases it'll come out. Also, DC police do not report directly to the Attorney General. I don't believe so. Like they will they not, not necessarily be directly bound by this, but the U.S. Attorney's Office might be. Okay, right? but, what, so, but what about federal? What about federal tax fraud? I mean, there are millions things that I can. No, I agree. That's why it's so. That's why it's exceptional. Immigration. Like you, this fraud. is really I mean, imposing. But tell me if I'm reading this wrong. I think I'm reading this right. This is requiring really high level approval to punish journalists for anything. <laughs> you didn't tell me to look at this ahead of time, right? Oh my God. Are we supposed to read the mem- the the regulations we're going to discuss on Ratsack? Oh my God! It is two sentences. I did guys. read it. I just didn't read that specific <laughs> portion of it. Hold on. God, you're signing us homework. God, you're you're worse than me, and I teach leg reg. 
Okay, so so I guess part of it will also depend on what prior authorization being being possible or not possible means. But still, you don't you don't want to get in a position of of having to check every time you arrest someone whether they're a blogger, and then routing your request to the CSIPs DAG or whatever before you arrest them. This seems this seems very strange. I think that this means that it's the purge, but only for journalists. There are no rules and we can do whatever we want. <laughs> That's what I'm saying, guys. Let's have a great weekend before anybody corrects this. <laughs> it's my idea as arguable members of the news media one way or the other. Uh, some of us more than others. But no, but here's the thing, right? And like, I mean, it, we're joking about this, but are we, just to kind of, as an interesting example, are we arguably members of the news media or are we who write regularly for lawfare about you know current events legal issues are talk to other journalists are frequently cited by other journalists are in a podcast I mean we're members of the news media right like the three of us if I'm not misreading this this directly applies to us it just seems so bizarre no I, but I, well but I think what again what I think it's doing is saying we're close enough of a great case that they'd have to go to the you know <laughs> deputy attorney general to, or assistant attorney general to clarify it but if we engage in something criminal then whatever we're doing, even if it's just a little bit criminal, is not news gathering, is not protected by this. So no, that's no, where it's but, putting but it's, the burden. But it's still protected by sub subsection. Oh, two. by the rest, yeah, by the rest. They still have to go to. That's they still, the hard part. That's what I'm saying. They still have to go to a deputy assistant. I mean, you know, I, I know agree. these guys. I, these these are these men and women. They're busy in the Department of Justice. I I read this and I was really struck by it. That's why I wanted to bring attention to it because I think it's a really interesting provision, frankly, way more consequential. And the only reason you build something like this level of protection in, I really do think is if you're worried about Justice Department abuse. I don't think Merrick Garland's worried about him or his staff abusing people. But, you know, you're putting this in regs, which is a good thing that they did. That's something we actually, I think I remember we talked about either on this podcast, Lawfare podcast, saying this is a great in 2021 when he issued the advisory memo. You have to put it in regs or else it doesn't mean anything. But as long as this is on the books and there are political costs and time required and legal challenges kind of available, they're probably pretty weak in this case, that you could pursue if a future administration tries to revoke them. You know, you're you're kind of stuck with it here. I think it's, I think it's a pretty telling structure. Um, but again, we'll have to see what we're going to keep an eye on the Wayback Machine and see if they change this. Yeah. Dear listeners, many of many of whom I know, I know, work for the federal government and even the Department of Justice. Tell us what this means. And the best part is when you tell us, I guess the government can't subpoena our phone records to figure out which one of you told us. It's all this beautiful circle. <laughs> Alan is officially not conspiring with anyone I am to not, try and get I am the to this information. Not there are no overt acts. He would, no overt he, acts. he would welcome an unsolicited email explaining this. If, 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 if someone wanted to tell someone else what this all meant, I would love to read that article in the New York Times. How about that? Uh, well, goodness. All right, guys. Well, folks. We will have to leave the conversation there for this week, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over the week to come until we are back in your podcaster, podcatcher, whatever you call it. Alan, why don't you get us started with our object lessons? What do you got for us this week? So I'm going back to my series of great audiobooks that I enjoyed. Uh, and the latest great audiobooks that I that I enjoyed, again, for free, because I use the Libby app and I do it through my public library, uh, was uh, a wonderful history from a few years ago by Daniel Immerwar called How to Hide an Empire, a History of the Greater United States, which is just a fabulous history of the United States, but focusing on its 
imperial holdings and not imperial in the kind of abstract sense of is America an empire, but in the like legitimate, you know, imperial holdings, like when we were in control of the Philippines and how Puerto Rico and Guam and the Mariana Islands developed. And in particularly, this book centers the experience of people living in these places and just, you know, how fraught it's been and how complicated the the people you know the views of the people who live in these places has been with respect to whether they want to be fully independent or whether they want to be sort of fully part of the american you know state system or something in between it's also just beautifully and like very entertainingly written sort of one of the the best you know it's hard to write a good american history book because it's just so overcovered uh, but this one really really nails it and so highly highly recommend um how to hide an empire by daniel immerwar I will say I have read that book. It is an excellent book and a good read. Uh, and a, a certain perspective, I don't necessarily buy a, all, all elements of it, but I think the history is very good and interesting. If you are particularly a lawyer interested in this stuff, because I love extraterritoriality, I think it's a crazy, crazy aspect of American law that's handled so interestingly throughout history. A great companion read to this that I went and reopened after I read this when it came out is Cal uh, Rastiala's uh, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. I'm so sorry, Cal. I've met you before, and I don't know how to say your last name. I'm finally admitting it now. Um, but I've admired your work for a long time. He wrote a book in 2007, 2008 called Does the Constitution Follow the Flag, which digs into a lot of the interesting legal issues around this, a lot of which are coming back for Supreme Court and then being denied cert, but nonetheless making it up to the Supreme Court uh, now in a variety of challenges to the insular cases. Um, so uh, really interesting set of issues. I, those two books are make a wonderful marriage together uh, for anybody who wants to have a real uh, deep dive into the law of empire uh, in the American legal system. Quinta, what do you have for us this week? I have the beautiful fall foliage in Washington, D.C., it is so gorgeous out there right now. I, I have been informed by none other than Capital Weather Gang, my favorite source for weather information in D.C., uh, that the the fall colors are particularly vibrant this year. I don't know if that's true outside the DMV, but I assume that it is. It has just been absolutely beautiful out there. I have really been enjoying it. Every time that I you know, look out at a tree, I feel a little spark of happiness, which is great because the world is otherwise just completely unrelentingly bleak. So I guess my my the object is like leaves or the changing seasons. I don't know, uh, but it has been very gorgeous. And I will I will put a, a picture of the fall foliage in our show notes. I, I was going to say your picture of Rock Creek Park is lovely, but also I just want to say as an upper Midwest supremacist these days uh, that it is also lovely here. It is high of 70 today with a high of 72 tomorrow. We also have lovely I, I think leaves. it's actually exactly the same here. <laughs> yeah, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Everyone, everyone in D.C. move, move to Minnesota. Great social services, cheaper houses. <laughs> Well, for my object lesson, uh, I will double down on the outdoor endorsements. I'm in fact recording this in my backyard as we speak, so you may hear some birds chittering uh, and neighbors hammering things. Um, but in the event that you don't, I am going to double down and dig back into my old familiar haunts uh, with a cocktail recommendation. The cocktail I will be recommending is a little cocktail that is named the same way I like to live my life, which is Naked and Famous, uh, which is a phenomenal drink. It combines equal parts, mezcal, lime juice, fresh, really fresh squeeze. So I've been using a little bit of that organic jarred stuff and it works too. It's fine. And because limes are a lot of work to squeeze, you're making a lot of these drinks for people. Uh, and then 
Aperol, a kind of red aperitif Aperol that I have been using Don Ciccio DC's local Amaro Distillery Ambrosia Aperitivo, which is a great substitute that I uh, like a little more than regular Aperol in this application. Uh, and then yellow chartreuse, a lovely liqueur that does not get enough love. And frankly, I bought a bottle of and then couldn't figure out what the heck to do with. And this is this is the way to do it. So I highly recommend this cocktail, even though it's not particularly seasonally appropriate. It helps you uh, weather these last few warm days of fall um, with something a little bit tropical before we set into proper winter. And with that, I believe that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. Follow us on Twitter at RATL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, Visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links with past episodes, for our written work and the written work of our other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Quentin Allen, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye.